So Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein to rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance of joy and faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. It's easy, friends, to allow the things of life to set us off course from the things that are of the most essential, the most important for us to consider, the main things. Maybe not intellectually. Maybe if you were stopped in your day-to-day -day business and you were asked, what's the most important thing in the world? You would know that the answer is Jesus Christ. He holds the first place in our creed and our confession of faith and for the true Christian, he holds the first place in our hearts. Even with our sin, even with our inconsistency, the real Christian knows Jesus is my all in all. But even knowing those things doesn't mean that sometimes, maybe too much of the time, we tend to live inconsistently with the things that we know. We tend to forget the things that really ought to occupy the majority of our time thinking and the choices that we make and the things that we do. Even the holiest of believers, like a Moses, for example, would pray in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And we need to pray like he prayed and to think like he thought. Because to the extent that we aren't numbering our days to apply our hearts to wisdom, too much worldliness creeps into our lives. 
far too little spiritual mindedness in ourselves. So this morning, I want to meditate together with you on some of the main things out of this verse in Philippians 1.21. Paul sets it nicely before us. Life and death. Both of them brought together for the Christian by Jesus Christ. Because as busy and as complicated as life sometimes seems, everything really boils down to this. God has given us a short, short time compared to eternity in this life. Every single one of us today who's here has already spent a portion of that time God has allotted to us. If he sets out 70, 80, 90 years, some of that we've already spent and we'll never get back. And what we're doing with this brief time that God has measured out to each of us has effects that are going to be felt forever. Thousands of years from now, if we can even talk about eternity in those terms, we will be experiencing, whether for good or for ill, the fruit of the way that we are spending our lives right now. And that's helpful to reflect on. The life may be very short, but it has eternal, everlasting consequences. And sooner than we realize, death is going to come to each of us. And when it does, it will seal forever, irreversibly, what we are sowing right now, even today. That's fairly simple. Life and death. Make it the business, my friends, of your life to prepare for death. Some of the godly uh, Christians of former times, like in the Puritan era, for example, would tell us that the chief business of our life, the main thing that we do with this life that God has given us, is use it to prepare to die. Because that is the threshold that everything else begins with. We need to live every day conscious of this reality. That we are alive now in this world for the purposes God has given us, but it will soon end. And even though we don't like to think about that oftentimes until we're forced to, when death is thrust into our consciousness, you can't ignore it away, can you? Even if we don't like to think about it, it will come to those we love, to those around us, and eventually to ourselves. But as heavy as that is, and it is, I admit, it is a very heavy way to introduce a sermon. Let us not stop there. Because as we turn to the word of God, it tells us what to do with those things. Not just that you should think about it, but how to think about it. And the consequences that those truths should have in the Christian life. Paul is showing us in this verse 
that there is no need to try to avoid thinking about death. Paul is not approaching this topic, neither should we, as one that is heavy and morose, that is depressing, where he's saying, well, Philippians, I know you're not going to like hearing this, but here it is, you're going to die. What I find really remarkable about this verse is it's in Philippians, the book that is often known as Paul's epistle of joy. <laughs> More perhaps than any other writings of the Apostle Paul, Philippians is characterized by joy and a, a bubbling up and a, an effusion of what it means for there to be gladness in the Christian life. It's in that kind of a book that Paul tells us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the Holy Ghost, through Paul's example, a real life example, this isn't just theoretical head knowledge stuff, this is stuff that he actually lived and experienced, is teaching us that consciously thinking rightly about life and death, far from being something to drag the Christian down, ought to be a source of comfort, of bravery, of joy and peace in the life God has given us. So if this sounds like a demoralizing topic for a sermon, don't let it be. It shouldn't be. Paul has a note here of triumph because God would have you to share in this kind of confidence, joy, and peace right along with the apostle. This isn't a reality only for the super spiritual Christian, for the apostles. It's a reality that the Holy Spirit would cultivate in all of his children for their joy and their comfort. What is important to see, though, that whether we're talking about life or in death, the common, the common thing that holds these together for the Apostle Paul is Christ. So I want to encourage you today, brothers and sisters, as we reflect on these simple but weighty truths. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But to drive that introduction home just one more step before we jump into the meat of this verse. We have to understand the context to see the good effects that I'm talking about. When Paul writes these words, he is in prison. And if you remember what Acts tells us about the story of the Apostle Paul, he had been in prison for years in Caesarea in Palestine waiting for a trial, and it eventually came, and Paul ends up appealing to Caesar and then having to travel all the way to Rome. So for a long time, Paul has been in this sort of limbo, in, imprisoned, and now he's in Rome, waiting a trial before Caesar, who was by no means a good or godly man, and he doesn't know what's going to happen at the end of that trial. It could be that he will be let go, for he has done nothing against the law, or Caesar could have him put to death as a martyr for the faith. So he sits, waiting, 
not knowing when it's going to come, but knowing it, in a sense, is hanging over his head. And in that context, Paul says this. He is writing to the church of Philippi that he had been to and helped start, and they obviously would be concerned and interested in what their beloved apostle is experiencing. You know, if, if your own pastor was in prison facing this, I hope and trust that you would have concern for what he was going through. But Paul is the one writing to them, to comfort them, telling them, Philippians, you don't need to worry as if this is a problem for me. Let me tell you the good news. Everything that's happening is turning out for good. And he can say that because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whichever way it goes, Jesus will be glorified. And you know what? I'm good with that. That's enough for me. So the real question is, is it enough for us? When it's not someone else going through it, but when it's you and me experiencing the things that cause us to come face to face with life and death. Can you imagine actually feeling this way? I mean, it's one thing to read the Bible and say, yes, that's the right Christian way to respond, and I understand that this is how I should think, and I might even be able to parrot the words back to you. But can you actually imagine in your life, in those quiet moments, when you're alone with your thoughts, perhaps when you're startled into thinking about your own mortality and frailty, to always have this confidence, to always feel whatever Jesus does with me is okay, because I'm no loser no matter what the case is when he is glorified. Well, here he shows you how. And so let's dig into that and see what it looks like, what it means to have this grace cultivated in our own lives also. Paul is telling us in the first part of verse 21, his life is all about Jesus. In whatever circumstances he finds himself, it's about Christ. He has his life from Christ. His whole pleasure, desire, and joy are wrapped up in Christ. His purpose for living, the goal at which he aims in everything, is Christ. Now, at one level, that isn't terribly difficult to understand, is it? Even if we take it out of the spiritual realm into an earthly realm, we understand people who have a passion for something that is so consuming to them that we could say that that person lives for something, right? You know, people who live for their jobs or live for their families. And for far, far too many of us, is it not the case that people are living for their own ease, comfort, and happiness in this world only? Well, what then does it look like? What then does it mean to say, for me to live is Christ? Because for the Christian, that should be your consuming passion, shouldn't it? 
First of all, it refers to having our life from Christ. We have a consciousness that of the being of our existence of our life, our real life, is inseparable from Christ. Now, we were all born into this world, and we're surrounded by people walking around every day who don't believe in him, that are alive in a sense. But you know what the Bible calls them? Dead. Those who don't believe in Jesus are dead in their trespasses and sins. That was something that Paul knew personally. He knew what it was to be dead in his sins, in all of his self-righteousness, before Christ stopped him dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus and turned him into a Christian. He knew what it was to be dead while he lived. Do you? Do you really look at your life and see an experience where you were dead in sins once, but Christ has saved you. And when he called you by the gospel for the first time ever, you were truly alive. And in a real sense, life didn't even start, didn't even begin until you knew him. Everything that went before you look back on and are disgusted by and reject, that's Paul's experience. He would say later in this same book, all that stuff that I went through, whether it was my righteousness, whether it was the things I was doing, I count it all loss for the sake of Christ. Dumb, he even says. Were you dead in sin? Has Jesus made you alive? Because you are never really living life until it's in him. Until you, like Paul, can say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. Christian knows what it is to say, what is life? Isn't it only what I really experience because of my relationship to Jesus? Nothing else is worthy of the name. Friends, as you hear this today, can you say, this is me? Because that's what Paul is doing here. He says, for me to live is Christ. The implication, that isn't true of everyone. <laughs> there are many, many people of whom that is not the case and not the experience. What about you, dear people? Is Christ your life? But there's even more to it than that. Because the Bible holds forth not just the existence of life, newness of life in Christ. There is a joy and a sweetness that comes as a result of believing in him. It's as if the best part, the sweetest part of life is Jesus. 
Yes, God gives us all kinds of earthly gifts. He gives us families. He gives us homes. He gives us the ability to enjoy his creation. Those are all good and right things that we can and should enjoy. But when you add everything up together, what is the best part of your life? What is that thing that you would say, if I didn't have this, life really wouldn't even be worth living? Is it a person? Is it a thing? Is it an experience in this world? Or is it the Lord Jesus himself? I'd rather be dead if I didn't have whatever. Sometimes you hear people say it, sadly, over stupid things that are passing away and have no eternal lasting impact. But the Christian knows what it means to sing, Upon my heart bestowed by thee, more gladness I have found. Than they, e'en then, when corn and wine did most with them abound. The Christian knows what it is to say with the bride and the song of Solomon, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Jesus is better than the best of any earthly joy you've known. Right? Is it so? Have you experienced it to be this way? Have there been times when you have come to read the Bible or hear it read and preached where you have known a nearness to Jesus, an intimacy with him that surpasses anything else? Have there been times when you have prayed privately alone, when the closeness with Jesus is almost as it were palpably near? And oh, the sweet fellowship we have with him in the sacraments such as the Lord's Supper. When we come near to Jesus in faith, taking his own body and blood as our only hope in life and in death. Now, no Christian knows this as perfectly as he wants. None of us can say, oh yeah, that's my life all the time with no variation. But do you know anything of it? And as you survey all the things that mean the most to you, is that the best of it? To live, with, to live as Christ also refers not just to the existence and the sweetness of life, but also the goal and the purpose for which we live our life. You see, that's the context here for Paul. In the context, he's saying that it really doesn't matter whether he lives or dies, because the purpose that he has in his life is to see Jesus glorified. So whether people are preaching him out of pretense or truth, great! My whole goal is for Jesus to be preached. Whether it be he's let go, great! I get to go preach the gospel more. Whether he dies, that's just fine. Because I am witnessing to the grace of the Lord Jesus that gives a Christian the willingness to die if need be for him. For Paul, it means a care for the church. I ask you, brothers and sisters, how much does the church of Christ enter into your affection and mind and reason for living? Is it just some place you 
show up on the Lord's Day most of the time when it's convenient? Or is the well-being of Christ's people, the glory of his name and his kingdom advancing to the ends of the earth, does that get you excited? Because it did for Paul. He was willing to forego what he wanted to go to heaven now if it meant the good and well-being of other believers. Is that part of the, the aim and the purpose of your life? We're taught to pray for his kingdom to come. Do you not only pray it, but do you live it? Is that what your priorities say? If we charted out your calendar, your bank account, the conversations that you have, the thoughts that you have, do they center around Jesus Christ in the magnification of his name through his kingdom and church, even on earth? Paul actually could say all these things in a real sense were true of how he thought, and not only how he thought, but how he lived his life. God has given you one life. What are you doing with it? Is this characteristic of it? If it is, what can ever phase us? No matter what happens with the ups or downs, nothing can take anything away from the Christian that is of the most importance, it's like when Jesus says, you know, don't worry about the people that can kill the body and after that they have nothing left they can do to you. If you're a God who can take, kill, kill both body and soul in hell. You see, if I lose my life in this world, the worst sort of a, a end result we can think of, we haven't really lost the things that the world can't touch. Time that God has given us now in this life gives us an opportunity to know Christ and live for Christ in a way that we won't ever have again. You know, even in heaven, we won't have the same kinds of way to serve God. In heaven, faith is given way to sight. And there won't be the need to live submissively believing in things we can't see while we suffer. That's a way that you get, not have to, get to serve Christ now that we'll never have again. Are you making use of it? Christian, I implore you to wake up to be roused by this reminder, to be stirred up today as we, we go from here to remember life is short and we pass, I say pass, but we waste so much of that precious gift on the things that will completely fade away and have no place in eternity. And reflecting on this is crucial because it is only those who can say the first half of this verse for me to live as Christ, who can in truth say the second half of the verse and to live or and to die as gain. The two go hand in hand. You can't break them up and separate them. If Christ is not your life, 
death will not be our gain. Not everyone that dies goes to a better place. The Bible speaks much of the doctrine of hell. And without Christ, that is the only thing that awaits sinners. Outside of Christ, this life is the best it will ever get for you in eternity. And throughout the reaches of eternity, it will only get far far worse, where the flame is not quenched, and the worm dieth not. And those are serious things to think about. If your whole portion, if your whole joy and desire and purpose is wrapped up in this world and this life, when it is gone, you have lost everything. If that is true, and I pray that God gives you the grace to know your hearts, that is true. Do not perish in your sin today. Come to Jesus. He will not turn away any sinner that comes to him in faith, but will freely give his life to them. It is important to make that first step, to reflect on that first step, so that then, if we deal honestly with our soul, if we can look to ourselves and see in the light of Scripture, though I still have sin, yet I believe in Christ, I cling to Him, there is so much comfort for you in the second half of this verse. What a delight it is to read on and say, just as much as to live is Christ, something I can see and experience and understand right now, so real as that is, so real is the second part, to die is gain. Paul is eyeing death here, and it's helpful to note how he connects death with life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not like Paul says, well, to live is Christ, that's where it's at. Life in this world, but to die is gain. Yeah, yeah you know, th there will be stuff to compensate for life when we die. Not at all. Nor is he saying, to live is Christ, yeah, you have to go through the hard stuff of this world and sort of soldier your way through it, and then the real fun starts in heaven, but to die is gain. He's not disjoining these two things. He's pulling them together and saying that for the person who knows what it means to live as Christ, they have that now, that real blessing now, and together with that, Christ gives them so much more in death. And it's helpful to think about this because we know the part that we can see and feel. We know what a loss death often seems. It is the loss of much for us in this world. We know the hurt it causes when people that we love and care about are taken from us by it. And there's a real and natural sense in which death is called in the Bible the king of terrors because none of us wants to experience death for death's sake. Nobody in their right mind 
is excited about the experience of death as such. But, Christian, Jesus would have you not only fear death, not only not fear death, he's teaching you how to look forward to what it will bring you into. In the context, Paul is saying in verse 23 that he would desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ because that is far better. He considers what death will usher him into far better than living life. Not because life is horrible, but because the experience of Jesus is better. Have you ever really felt that way and thought that way? Not just thinking of death as an escape from a problem, but thinking about what it will mean when you enter into the reward that Jesus has prepared for his people from the foundation of the world. Well, let us consider then, in just a little bit, what that means and looks like. Because for the Christian, at least sometimes, I think, part of the difficulty of really really laying hold of that and asserting that for ourselves is that we have a hard time understanding what it means. Heaven seems so out there, so vague and indistinct to us, and it's hard to get excited about. Right? If you're going to go visit a foreign country on a vacation, what do you do? You don't just you know, get on a plane and go there and hope it's good on the other side. You get your travel books out <laughs> and you look at pictures and you, you, see, you know, scroll through pictures on Google and stuff to see what it is that you're going to experience when you get there. Although so much is hazy in the scripture about heaven, there are real things that tell us what it's like. And the more that we know those as Christians and believe them, the more excited we can be. Take it from Paul. Paul saw it firsthand. He tells us he had been caught up into the third heaven in paradise and heard things it was not possible to utter. Heaven is so great that he couldn't fully express it. It's like trying to tell a baby in the womb what, what the greatest parts of life will be like. I think they don't have any full way to quite grasp that yet. And yet, there are things we do understand. Take it from Jesus, who when he speaks about heaven is telling his disciples, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and bring you back or bring you to be with me where I am. Who knows better what it's going to be like than the one who's preparing it for us? Well then, what are we told about this far better state into which the Christian will be brought by death. One of the things we know is that our warfare will be over. We will have eternal rest. And how comforting that is. The joy of no longer experiencing the effects of the curse. Our whole life, even the best parts of it, is toil but their eternal rest. Here, we never stop experiencing pain. Some of us experience quite a bit of pain. If you don't now, there is a fair chance that at some point before the Lord takes you, you will know even more than you presently do. 
but they're gone forever. Here, so much casts us down, makes us sad. There, the Lord himself will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. Here, our weak flesh so often stymies our willing spirits. We want to do right, we want to serve the Lord, but we find the flesh is weak and hinders us in that pursuit. But when we finally lay these bodies in the grave, that struggle is done forever. Because you will instantly enter into the assembly of just men made perfect. When you close your eyes in death, sin is gone. Can you imagine what that will be like? I have a hard time even conceiving about what it would be like to spend a single day without sin in this world. Because even when I may not be overtly sinning, I still have thoughts and attitudes and demeanors and sins of omission that never leave me. There, no temptation, no sin ever again. Does that excite you? And that's just when you die. When our bodies are raised again from the dead and made conformable to Jesus' glorious body, then they will be perfect servants to a sinless soul. That whatever that sinless soul knows to do in service of God, the body will not only not hinder it, it will help. And not, in all of this, we will not experience alone. We'll have the whole church from all ages with us. Think about Paul here who's experiencing people in the church who are preaching Christ to try to add affliction to him. You ever thought about that? There's Christians thinking, Paul is in prison, or at least professing Christians thinking, Paul is in prison, how can I make things harder for him? <laughs> and we all know, I trust, by some experience, the pain that is caused to us by people who are in the church and claim to be Christians who hurt us and harm us. And yet, all of those divisions, all of those separations will be done away with. Our fellow Christians will be just as sinless as we ourselves and will aid us and help us in the worship of God, making it delightful forever. We will have fellowship with angels themselves. Imagine what you can learn about God by talking to an angel. <laughs> and all of this we will experience forever, only growing, only increasing as time, so to speak, goes on, as the infinite God shares more and more of himself with his finite creatures. Paul talks about, uses the phrase, from glory to glory. It's a real sense in which heaven itself becomes more heavenly to the Christian. Is your appetite whetted? Are you ready to go? Brothers and sisters, you haven't even heard the best part yet. Paul tells us the real joy, the real crown of heaven 
is to depart and be with Christ. In other words, the same thing that makes life good now for the Christian, Jesus, is what makes heaven good for the Christian, Jesus. We know him as Christians, but how little do we know him? We know only so little. Even the Bible itself, none of us knows everything in the Bible perfectly like we should, right? I mean, can you pick up your Bible and say, oh yeah, I got this down. But even if you did, even if you knew the Bible perfectly as it's given to us in this world, you still would only know Jesus through a glass darkly. But the day is coming when we will see him face to face and be like him as he is and know him, not just seeing his glorified human nature, but by our spirits seeing the divine nature and enjoying God in a way we have not yet begun to know him here. But it still, for all that, is the same Jesus. And so the encouragement is, you want to not fear death. You want to look forward to heaven more. Know him better here. Think by example of the difference between going to visit someone's house that is a stranger. Hey, you know, okay, you know, there's, there's somewhat of a foreignness to it because we don't know the person. How different is that from going home to our father, to our elder brother? The more you know Jesus on earth, now in the life that he has given you, the more it makes heaven a familiar place, a comfortable place, something you delight in even more and look forward to even now. And oh, how we will enjoy Enjoy him there. How will I enjoy Jesus in heaven? Well, the little foretastes, the little appetizers you get in this world are just that. Foretastes and appetizers of the main course. And so if we delight in him here, we know a little bit, a little bit now, of what heaven will be like for us. How wonderful an encouragement this is to the Christian to look at death and say, whatever, you know, I don't want to experience death itself. What that brings me into is more, more of what makes life worth living now. Why is it that Christians fear this so much? Why is it that we dread this so much and want to push it out of our minds? What in this whole wide world is so great that this is not better. Are you beginning to feel anything, my friends, of why Paul longed for this so much? I hope so. Because if you do, it leads us to two concluding applications. And the first is this. If you really get a hold of this by faith, and live this way now by faith, your fear of death will become less and less. By God's grace, we will come to a point like Paul where we will even welcome it because it gives us the joy that we desire. 
the hope that we live our lives in. And even in those situations where our loved ones are taken from us in death, believing loved ones, it softens that pain, if even just a little, because they get to go there now. But finally then, as you grasp this truth, let it not only make heaven more precious to you, but let it invigorate your life. And with the time remaining that God has given you, grow in your knowledge of him and your love of him and your enjoyment of him and your service to him in his kingdom. And you will know experientially something of that joy and hope and courage that the Lord intends for his people to have. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is, is, is not hard to understand on these truths, but our hearts are so often backwards in embracing them. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our unbelief. Cause us to grow in our knowledge and our experience of Jesus Christ throughout life, to delight in him in life, that he might be to us life, and to long for that precious rest and reward with him perfectly, fully, forever. In his name we pray. Amen.